spoiler alert for the first four episodes of The Haunting of Bly Manor. If you have not seen this show and don't want it spoiled, stop the podcast here, watch the show, then come on back and join us. And because this show is based on Turn of the Screw, there are technically also spoilers for Turn of the Screw. Haunted Spouse, a Haunted House podcast. I'm your ghost host, Ben Casey, and this is my Haunted Spouse and co-host, Laura. Hello! Tonight on Haunted Spouse, we'll be talking about the 2020 Netflix series, The Haunting of Bly Manor. Created by Mike Flanagan, it is the second entry in his haunting anthology series. While the first miniseries takes inspiration from Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor is based on Henry James's The Turn of the Screw, which we covered in a previous episode of this podcast. Most of the story is set in the UK in the 1980s, though the frame story is set at a wedding in the US in the early 2000s, and it also includes a flashback to the 1600s. This is going to be our first two-parter and the season finale for Haunted Spouse. So after this, we will have one more episode, episode 13, of course. Our hope is to return to your podcatchers in the fall for Haunted Spouse Season 2. Just like the source material, The Haunting of Bly Manor is told as a story within a story. The frame story is taking place the night before a wedding. The bride, groom, and some of their rehearsal dinner guests gather by the fire after dinner and swap ghost stories. A middle-aged woman tells the story of a young au pair named Danny Clayton. And they have to keep in that line about, Oh, you think one child is scary? Try two children! I'm going to one-up you. Well, I think she even says, like, the exact another line. turn of... Yeah, oh, yeah, that's she right. She even says another turn of the screw. I kind of, when I saw that, I, I was like, ah, they did it. <laughs> they did the thing. <laughs> I just think it's funny that it's like, oh, I'll give you two children. Mm-hmm. And the next person is like, okay, well, here's a story with four children. And then that SNL character shows up oh, twirling yeah. her hair and is like, well, I have a story with a hundred children. <laughs> and they're all ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Danny Clayton is an American who has come to the UK to flee her past. A school teacher in her old life, She is hired to be the au pair for the Wingrave orphans, Miles, 10 years old, and Flora, who is 8. Just like in The Turn of the Screw, she is hired by their uncle, who does not wish to be bothered. Though in this version, he is disengaged because he is coping poorly with the grief he feels from his brother and sister-in-law's passing while traveling abroad in India. So he gets both a name, Henry, and much more of a backstory, which we might end up getting into more later. Miles has been expelled from his boarding school for a series of increasingly severe infractions. It seems as though he got himself expelled on purpose after receiving an appeal from Flora to come home. Even after he returns home, however, his behavior is sporadic, ranging from his typical mild-mannered demeanor to outbursts of anger and a clear desire to be treated as an adult, despite the fact that he is only 10 years old. When Danny arrives at Bly Manor, she meets Mrs. Hannah Gross, the housekeeper who is protective of the children as well as the memories of their late parents and their previous au pair who was found dead in the lake at Bly just a few months previous. There are also two new characters employed at Bly, though they both live in town and do not stay at the manor. Owen Sharma is a gourmet chef who moved back home to care for his mother who has dementia. He is very kind and makes the best puns. <laughs> that might depend on your perspective. <laughs> okay, I might be a little biased. They're terrible puns, but I love them. <laughs> Jamie Taylor is the gardener for Bly's gigantic and quite impressive gardens. She prefers people to plants, and yet over time, Danny finds herself turning to Jamie for emotional support and more. Danny also sees the ghost of Peter Quint, Henry's former executive assistant 
who disappeared into the night with some of the Wingrave fortune, and Rebecca Jessel's heart. As we mentioned before, the house and the grounds are magnificent and beautiful, and kept pretty much immaculate, with the exception of muddy footprints that appear every night. Flora has a dollhouse that is a miniature version of the house. It's pretty extra. She is superstitious about all of her dolls remaining in their proper places. The adults chalk this up to her desire to protect those in the house, after going through three traumatic losses in such a short time. As with the previous entry in the haunting anthology, The Haunting of Hill House, if you're looking closely and you know what you're looking for, you can see ghosts in the background and sometimes pretty impressively hidden in the foreground as well. So the first episode is jam-packed with action and also backstory um, because we are introduced to a whole slew of characters, the intriguing situations and mysteries, or at least some of them. And this is the episode where Danny meets the children, the staff, kind of gets settled into her room and a little unsettled by the way the children are and is locked in the closet by the children for a couple of hours. What did you think of this episode? (laughs) It's honestly hard to say exactly where to begin with this, but I guess it's pretty neat being able to go from having just read about the manner and the setting and the people to finally seeing them and seeing the manor and especially living in the States, particularly living in a place where you don't really have those kinds of buildings around. You don't have big manors with large multi-generation centuries of history. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it really is a gorgeous set that they've got, um, lends itself well to telling this story, especially the way that the original story juxtaposes this beautiful, gorgeous, uh, what's the, what's Flora's words? Perfectly splendid. Perfectly splendid. Yes. It's perfectly splendid and juxtaposing that with a lot of what's to come and even juxtaposing that with the Haunting of Hill House series, which is more of an old dark house, um, very dark, rundown. Um, anyway, <laughs> I thought they did a really good job uh, presenting a manner that felt very much like what's described in, in The Turn of the Screw. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really liked the new characters they introduced. Um, kind of ultimately ends up lending itself to also a little bit of a found family kind of story, which I think there was the possible groundwork there in the turn of the screw with the way that Mrs. Gross and uh, the governess kind of hit it off. But I think this series really plays it up, especially with adding Jamie and Owen into it and the way that they all kind of operate like a family, like eating meals at the dinner table together and things like that. I think they eat dinner in the kitchen, which makes a difference like in an estate that size, which actually is what um, Jack and Wendy and Danny did in The Shining, too. They ate in the kitchen because it felt weird eating in the dining room. Yeah. Because I think the only scene I can think of that takes place in Bly Manor in the dining room is, I think, Owen's interview, maybe? I think that was in the kitchen, too, wasn't it? Because they sit at the end of the table. Oh, maybe, yeah. There is one scene that they eat the, a meal in there, but... Is the dining room the one with that fancy wallpaper with all the flowers on it that's overwhelming to look at? I think so. Okay, that's that's what I'm picturing yeah. in my head. Um, what? Yeah, when did they do that? I think it was kind of early on, too. Uh, now I kind of want to rewatch it again and see if we notice 
some kind of transition if as we see them, because over the course of the show, I feel like we do see them start to spend more time together and uh, even more so than before uh, Danny showed up. But, yeah. Yeah, I was going to add, too, that it would be tempting, I think, when you're thinking about adapting Bly Manor to a miniseries like this to go the Midsommar route like we'd Mm. kind of expected that they would. Yeah. But I'm glad they didn't because, to me, the story has a completely different ambiance and feel even than the Netflix version of The Haunting of Hill House. Mm -hmm. And I think it would have just been a different story if they'd gone more for, like, the creepy, uncanny valley either too perfect Stepford Wivesy or dissociative almost yeah surreal thing yeah but i felt like with this one what stood out to me visually was that the house and the gardens are absolutely beautiful and well kept the gardens and the lake and even the chapel are just as important parts of the grounds as any of the rooms in the house. And at the same time, you can feel the emptiness of a house that is two children and a couple of house staff rather than the family home that it was intended to be. Yeah. Or even vacation home for a family that it was intended to be. That even though they have this warmth of found family and they have these really nice moments together that, like you said, I think are suggested in The Turn of the Screw, but it's just the two women, I think, in that one who have those moments. So it's not quite to the extent that we see in this version. And I, I yeah. really enjoy that as a viewer, especially someone who doesn't want to spend 10 hours in a miniseries being scared or uncanny the whole time. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. I, I enjoyed that. That particular type of warmth, yet at the same time, there's a graveness and a gentleness and a caution, I think, that the characters are taking because they're all tiptoeing around these very significant losses that have happened. And then as we learn as well, each character carries other loss and trauma. And so I think it does a really good job of showing that even... Even a place as like bright and beautiful as Bly doesn't erase that um, grief and psychological distress that someone could be going through. Yet at the same time, there are still these really beautiful flowers and beautiful moments of life. Like, it really plays that balance really well, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, because, like, especially because it's a summer home, you do have this warmness and this prettiness but also you as the viewer feel and the various characters are all very acutely aware of the fact that there are two people missing from this scene. Three if you count. And three Rebecca if you count. Jessel, yeah. And then also Owen is dealing with going yeah. through the loss of his mom as well. And that's one of the things that I love about this and Haunting of Hill House and I haven't seen Midnight Mass yet, but I would assume it probably does something similar, uh, which is Midnight Mass being another uh, Mike Flanagan series. Um, the way that it takes characters who either weren't necessarily given that much time in the original work or who might have just been a side character in another story and really takes the time to give them an episode where they get to be centered and you get to learn their story. And everyone has a reason why they are the way they are. And it's really nice to get to see that and to learn more about them and how those things interconnect because then they all lean on each other because they all have some degree of understanding, even if it's not in the same way. They they can all help and support each other. 
Yeah, there's this really striking moment where Owen has just come back from his mom's funeral and little Flora mm. comes up and tells him that you're not dying. You, you probably feel like you're dying, but you're not dying, I promise. Because she has also just experienced losing... Three people. Yeah, three <laughs> caregivers. And um, and I love that line when she says... Which, it's it's so perfect that it is both such a heartfelt and meaningful piece of advice and also terrifying in the context of this story. Because she tells him dead doesn't mean gone. Which is really nice and a really great piece of advice. And obviously that's how the characters in the story take it. But, of course, she has other reasons for understanding and believing that dead doesn't mean gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's watching it the second time, it's so funny to see what the kids are saying versus what the adults are hearing, <laughs> mm-hmm. which obviously is exaggerated because they're, you know, experiencing two different realities, essentially, in this story, but probably represents, um, on a, hopefully a smaller scale, how sometimes I think adults and kids do talk across each other yeah. without quite meeting in the middle. <laughs> well, especially for us, we kind of get the dramatic irony of knowing what the kids mean, but seeing what the adults hear. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's very interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but kind of like you were saying, though, the way that things could have leaned into the uncanny and the... Creepy child. Creepy child type stuff. I think part of how they avoid that so well is that those kids are so good at turning it on and off. Mm -hmm. Like, they can switch from normal, cute, adorable kid to, I am now going to say and act, say something and act in a way that makes you feel very uncomfortable. And the way they can navigate between those is just amazing. Yeah, and not only is it uncomfortable because it's creepy, uncomfortable because we think that there's ghosts. Sometimes it's uncomfortable because Miles is acting and speaking like a creepy adult man. Yes. Which, it's a good idea, I think, to call out creepiness in adult men, but it's so interesting how it stands out and feels so much more awkward coming out of the body of a (laughs) 10-year-old. Absolutely. I also like that it works so well with the inconsistent ages of the kids in Henry James's novel, (laughs) which I'm not totally sure was intentional. It might have genuinely been that the concept of kids was, and what they understand, was not great. Yeah. Or maybe Henry James didn't understand it that well, because looking back... There are a lot of inconsistencies about what age these kids are supposed to be. And maybe that yeah. was supposed to be like, oh, they're creepy because, you know. Because you can't quite tell or whatever. Yeah. But it also might have, I think it might have genuinely been that he didn't know how to write kids. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that could very well be. Well, that's what I love about this adaptation is it really rolls with the book. Mm-hmm. Like, it takes those things fleshes them out and creates a new story out of them, I think. For instance, we get a whole episode on what happened when Miles was at school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's always the idea that sometimes things not being shown is better or things can be creepier when you leave them unexplained. But the way they do it in this show makes it that much better because... It really just plays even more into the intrigue because this idea that rather than it just being something that he did that was naughty, (laughs) (laughs) it's that Flora is calling him home and so he has to do whatever he can to get himself kicked out so that he can come back home. 
And that just is like another turn of the screw. It dials it up again because now there's this extra intrigue of like, okay, this isn't just some random thing he did. There was a reason, but we don't understand yet why. And it also helps us understand Peter Quint's character a little bit more because I think in the same episode, we see a flashback where Peter Quint has explained to Miles that different people have different keys, Mm -hmm. meaning you need to figure out what it is that will cause someone to give you a certain reaction that you're looking for. And Peter Quint's example is that a lot of women, the key is flowers, like give them flowers, which... (laughs) tells you something about his character Mm -hmm. that this is the way that he sees other people as being doors to unlock and not humans to respect and empathize with because there is an inherent lack of respect when you see other people as doors to unlock. But then we see him using this logic to try to figure out what's it going to take to get his school to expel him. Yeah. Well, I think that flashback, I think, even comes in the next episode, because I don't think we actually meet oh, I think you're right. Quint I think until you're right. the next one. Um, and so that's even better, because Miles kind of mutters something about, I just needed to find the key. And again, at this point, we're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> What's the key? What's, what is this? And then we learn where he learned that. Mm-hmm. and Because it's not all of the administrators, it's a specific person Mm -hmm. who has really taken Miles under his wing and is really, is really defending him against being expelled. Yeah. And so Miles needs to figure out what it is to get this particular person to give up on him. Yeah. Which is really also tragic in its own way as, as well. Absolutely. And this was definitely one of those episodes where the way I felt the first time watching it versus the way I felt the second time watching it were just two completely different realms. Because first time watching it, I was like, wow, Miles is really being something else in this episode. (laughs) Like, I, what is wrong with this kid? And I really, I was obviously really sympathizing with the person who he was doing these things to, because obviously this person for the most part, seemed to have Miles' best interests at heart. And and... understood that he'd just gone through this massive loss. Yeah. And so, yeah, first time around, it was a very one-way sympathy that I was feeling. You were empathizing with the adult. Yeah, I was empathizing with the adult in this situation because that's the only perspective we've had so far. But then... Once we finished the series, we have the whole context and then going back and watching it again with an understanding of Miles's motivations and why he was stuck in this situation where he had to do some very bad things in order to go be with Flora. It is just one of those things where you can really relate to both people Um, especially when one side doesn't have a complete understanding of what the other person is going through. Yeah, and I I think that maybe that touches on why kids are creepy is (laughs) a theme in a lot of haunted house stories because adults often don't have all of the information to understand what a kid is going through or why they're behaving in a certain way or they don't take the time to remember that kids' brains are different than adult brains sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so the kid's behavior looks like one thing to the adult when actually what they're trying to communicate with that behavior is something else entirely, which then I think connects back to how we're talking about the satanic panic and hmm. um, trying to listen to the children, but not really listening to the children. Yes. And I, I mean, I don't have any grand statements or any good answers about this, but I think that it can be quite a chasm between what adults think they're saying and hearing and what children think that they're saying and hearing. And then when there's also 
information that one side has that one side doesn't or other pieces like that, then it can become even harder to communicate. And that could be kind of spooky in a case involving a lot of loss or supernatural elements, Mm -hmm. um, trauma, all of that. We need to talk about Danny. Do we? Yeah. Okay. We haven't mentioned her ghost at all. Oh, good point. And he's the first one we see. Even. He is. And he's the one that always makes me go, ah. <laughs> yes. It should be noted that this series a little bit lighter on the spooks than Haunting of Hill House was. In terms of the jump scares? Yeah. Not in terms of the ghosts. There's lots no, of ghosts lots in this of ghosts. One. Yeah. yeah, lots of spooks in that sense. But this one's a little more of... The horror is a little more of a slow burn, intrigue, sort of thriller type psychological horror. I guess that was a lot of words. Yeah, I I have a hard time classifying it. And I'll drop this little Easter egg in here. Hmm. <laughs> At the end, a character comments that... It's just as much a love story as it is a ghost story. Mm. And that gives it a really different feel to me, even to the Haunting of Hill House series. And it definitely makes it feel like, I don't even know if I'm counting this as horror anymore. Because I think the horror elements could be read as metaphors for going through traumatic grief and loss Mm. that is being depicted in the monstrous way that it feels to go through those things. Yeah. Well, and that's perfectly illustrated in Danny's ghost, who I think very first time we see him appears in like the reflection on the window of a passing car, which is a wonderful bit of uh, Foreshadowing. foreshadowing. Yes. Um, First time through, I thought nothing of it. Second time through, I was like, oh, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> so this ghost is kind of a, a blackened figure, right? Yes. With um, circles, like saucers for eyes that are like glassy and shining. It's almost like that thing that... But blank. Yeah. It's like that thing that anime characters who wear glasses will do sometimes where they'll have a person in, like, a dark room, but their glasses will be lit up. Uh-huh. And I feel like I, I often think of that as, like, an anime character thing for some reason. But yeah, yeah. Anime and, like... Um, I guess graphic novels Graphic novels, yeah. I think, do that as well. And so, yeah, anytime you see him, he is shadowed, but his glasses are reflecting a bright light. I wonder and what that light could be. he pops up in reflections often standing behind Danny in the reflection so she keeps her mirrors covered up and tries to avoid looking at her reflection when the children lock her in Flora's closet for a couple of hours Danny's reaction is understandably pretty panicked as I think many of us would feel locked in a closet just from the claustrophobia of it all. And then on top of that, she turns around and sees that there's also a mirror in there. So she's locked in with this ghost. Yeah. And I think she she sees the reflection and then like immediately, I think, grabs some clothes off the rack and throws them over it. To cover it up. Yeah. But I think there's this implication that just because she covers it up doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah. That she might still feel its presence. And I guess that is, that kind of is the implication that really all she's doing whenever she does that is covering it up. Like, he's still there, he's still with her, he still holds some sway over her life, uh, even when she doesn't see him in mirrors. And so really until the episode where she finally confronts him and faces it, she's really literally just kind of covering it up hiding it under a blanket. Mm -hmm. Now I kind of want to go back and see, too, if there were specific 
thematic triggers that might have been happening before or if it's it's more of a random thing that he pops up because it makes sense that he shows up when she's with Jamie having a heart-to-heart conversation <laughs> and then I think they kiss for the first time in yes. the, uh, in the greenhouse. greenhouse yeah and then I'm not even sure if he appears in a reflection but he just pops up yeah which absolutely so. makes sense when you understand the greater context which we can discuss now because oh yeah that is in the that's in first the, half mm-hmm. well because actually real quick before we dive into that it is interesting how tied in he is to danny's relationship with jamie because even the first time they kind of flirt a little bit is after flora finds the glasses which were are the same glasses that the figure is wearing uh, in Danny's things, I think, and, like, sets them out on... Uh, She's wearing them, isn't she? Oh, was she wearing them? Something like, oh, I think she was wearing them. And Danny has a panic attack and runs out of the house just as Jamie is coming by, and Jamie kind of makes some jokes and tries to help reassure her some, and... That was kind of the first time I started to get a bit of a vibe between them, mm-hmm. where, like, yeah. the way... I, I felt like the way Jamie kind of helped her out there felt a little... Not necessarily more than friendly, but a little bit of a, like, hey, you seem cool, I kind of like you, Yeah, Let's it was like, as the they waters. were... As she was trying to joke with her to try to help lighten the heavy mood... Yeah. The joking felt, like, very tentative flirting yeah yeah i think so and so it's interesting that he is yeah i I don't know not to say that he's the reason for them getting together because i don't think that's (laughs) right or a good way to put it but it's just interesting how that interleaves with her relationship with jamie so we learn in the fourth episode which i believe is called the way it came I recently learned that this episode and several others are all named after other Henry James stories, because of course. (laughs) (laughs) So the episode follows the course of Danny's engagement to Edmund. We see pretty much just various scenes as we learn more about their history, growing up as childhood friends, and how she was almost a part of their family uh, because her mother wasn't particularly involved uh, after her father left is that right or did he die died. did he die yeah um and so she has been very close with edmund's mother enough so that she even yeah offers her wedding dress and so over the course of the episode we see danny beginning to feel more and more uncomfortable with things and props to the actress Victoria Pedretti she does such a good job at acting uncomfortable (laughs) like it is palpable how uncomfortable she is and how oblivious everyone around her is to it like the scene where she's being fitted for the dress You can just see how uncomfortable she is. She's, like, dying inside. Yeah, dying inside. Especially because you can tell that, like, she kind of likes the seamstress who's (laughs) fitting her for the dress. And it's just like, oh, no. (laughs) The episode culminates in a meal between her and Edmund. Um, They're out at a restaurant, and she is at peak discomfort And he's trying to help her relax a little bit, telling her that they don't need to worry as much about the preparation, like, if if she doesn't want it to be a whole thing. Like, he thinks that she's just nervous about planning the wedding. Once she reassures him, he says, Oh, thank goodness I was worried that you just didn't even want to get married at all. And she's silent. (laughs) And... In that moment, we all die inside a little. (laughs) For both parties. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So they get into an argument. Um, Because, of course, by now, I think it's pretty clear to an attuned audience that she loves him as a person, Mm. but 
is, at least from what we can tell, is lesbian. Yeah. And not attracted to him in that way, but doesn't want to break his heart or let down this family. Yeah. And he's been in love with her since they were in school, in grade school together. Yeah. And so she feels this pressure to live out what everyone has kind of wanted her to do. Yeah. So they've taken their discussion out to the car, uh, which is parked uh, by next to the road. Things heat up. Edmund gets angry. Because he can't understand why she would say she loves him, but then doesn't want to get married to him. Yeah. And we, the audience, are like, oh... And I think he even says something about, like, why would you do this to me type of stuff, which really hurts. Yeah. Especially (laughs) given what happens next. Yeah, and she can't, because it's the 80s, it doesn't seem like she has it in her to explain Oh, that's a good point, because she never actually says to him, does she? So, I mean, that's that's where, like, I have empathy. Like, yeah, he's kind of being a jerk right now. But I also have empathy for the fact that, like, okay, if you love me, why don't... He doesn't understand that she's saying love in a different way than I think he understands. And hearing. And it is partially because she can't explain it to him. Yeah. um, Which is not her fault, but it explains why... I think it explains a little bit why... Or justifies a little bit why he would be confused. Yeah, well, just like with Miles and the teacher, where there are things Miles can't tell him, and so there is this painful yeah um, misunderstanding misunderstanding between them, and and so yeah, um, Edmund gets angry, steps out of the car. And is almost immediately hit by a truck. I think the last, basically, the last look she has of him is what she sees in the reflections of him kind of shadowed, but his glasses illuminated by the oncoming headlights. And I guess there's a little bit more to the episode where, obviously... No one else knows that they were about to break things off, so everyone sees her as essentially a widow mm-hmm. and um, doesn't, again, doesn't understand the whole situation and say a lot of things to her that might normally be comforting, but are instead very distressing yeah. to her. And I think she also feels guilty because if they hadn't been arguing he wouldn't have been in the car in that moment he wouldn't have gotten out without looking both ways probably yeah um and so my reading is that how this impacts or is impacted by her relationship with jamie is that she has been dealing with this grief and guilt Mm. And feels haunted by him normally. And then as she becomes interested in a relationship with somebody else, that brings up probably some feelings that remind her of him just because she's experiencing the beginning of a relationship again. And so in that way, I don't think it even matters who Jamie is, but all of that, I think pretty naturally brings up feelings and thoughts that she might not have had for quite some time, but suddenly that reminds her of him in a way that she hasn't really desensitized herself to yet. That creates a very fertile ground for a lot of painful memories and thoughts to come flooding back. And then add to that the complication of her internalized guilt for her attraction to women, which she might see as being the reason that she couldn't have this relationship with him might create some complex feelings for her. I think there's also this um, potential sense of loyalty, unjust as it may be, that she might feel toward her previous partner that she wasn't able to uh, truly have closure on or end things 
properly with him because he died before she could. Yeah. That might make it feel even more complex and difficult to move on to a new relationship. Even if, you know, she should feel justified and, you know, nobody would blame her. But I think it's easy to blame ourselves in situations like that and feel like we are being disloyal to that person or betraying them in some way for moving on. And maybe that's not even specific to romantic relationships, but sometimes people feel guilty just for feeling happy in any circumstance after someone that they love has passed. Yeah. Well, and I think we definitely see that because to some extent it feels like she came to the UK to get away from some of that guilt she was feeling. And wouldn't you know it, it followed her there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, I think Jamie has also experienced a lot of hardship and loss and is able to provide some comfort and some helpful emotional support, as well as understanding and empathy that I think also help Danny heal. Yeah. Yeah, for someone who supposedly doesn't like people, she seems to be a very empathetic person. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why she doesn't like people, though. Yeah. Is that when you're that empathic, you feel that pain more. Yeah. Or other people have more capacity to hurt you, so maybe that's more what it's about then. Mm, Than lacking empathy, but rather... Yeah. I do think it's interesting because I think Edmund is kind of the primary example in this season or this series but the way that it plays with metaphorical ghosts and literal ghosts yeah that's a good distinction because you can't just will the other ghosts that we encounter away the way that danny is able to through overcoming Mm. her past Yeah, I think that's kind of interesting to see where the show works both in there, especially because in that same scene where Danny is overcoming the ghost of Edmund, we also see a little bit of Owen dealing with the ghost of his mother and Mm -hmm. the way that both her as a ghost now is like just being a memory, but also kind of her as a ghost toward the end of her life where he talked about her not really being herself anymore and that was kind of a ghost in his life as well and then later in the second half of the show we see some of like the manifestation of Henry's ghost that he's dealing with and so it's really interesting how this uses both actual ghosts and kind of ghosts in your mind as ways of representing um, the things that haunt you, I think. And I think in all three cases, Danny, Henry, and Owen, it's a lot of mixed feelings that include a lot of feelings of guilt. And I think with guilt often comes shame and self-reproach. Combined with then feeling guilty for feeling guilty mm-hmm. because somebody has died. And yeah. later on, we understand more why it is not purely the sadness of grief and loss that is impacting Henry. He has probably some very complex feelings because of the role he plays in his brother and sister in law. Flora and Miles's parents uh, being in India, which is where they die at all. Yeah, and not to mention the final interaction that he has with them mm-hmm. prior to that. And yeah, I think his ghost plays out in a really interesting way, which I'm sure we'll get into next episode, that kind of he's experiencing a different kind of grief, I think, a a different kind of guilt than 
some of the others are experiencing with their ghosts. And so it, that plays into how his ghost manifests itself to him. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I don't want to... I could go on for a little bit more about it, but like I said, that'll be next episode, so I don't really want to spoil that quite yet. But I think that'll be interesting to talk about. And then obviously then there are some real ghosts who... We also haven't learned too much about yet. Um, we'll be seeing more of them also in the next half. It really is a bit of a slow burn. Like, not to say that the first half is uninteresting, but just that a lot happens in the second half of this season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like there is so much interesting character development that happens in these first four episodes. And yet there's so much more that we haven't even touched on. So I'm yeah. really looking forward to getting to dive into some of that. It's such a rich story. And yet it doesn't feel like there's too much going on. It still feels like very contained, mm. maybe because there's a limited number of characters and a single setting pretty much. And yet... It is so rich for each character, so... Yeah, I think it does a lot like what Haunting of Hill House did, Mm -hmm. where you have this overarching plot, and this overarching haunting that is an actual real ghost haunting that affects them all, but at the same time, each individual person is haunted by their own ghost and so when we see their individual episodes we learn more about in some ways being affected by a real ghost in some ways being affected by these metaphorical ghosts but it always says something about their character and about how they've come to where they are um, mm-hmm. and how they deal with it it's like there's a primary haunting and then secondary hauntings that inform um the characters yeah. as well yeah Absolutely. And ultimately leads them all to the finale where they all face the kind of main haunt together as they've all worked through their own things and come together. And I don't know, I really enjoy that pattern because it leads to a lot of interesting character development in pursuit of a larger plot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited that we still have the Haunting of Hill House series to rewatch, mm-hmm. but I'm kind of sad that there aren't any plans that I've heard for there to be any more in this anthology. Yeah. But also, I would rather that than a poorly done one that doesn't really fit. So Absolutely. I kind of get it, but I just, I love this series so much. If you could pick a story to be the next entry in the haunting anthology what would you pick okay i want to give like i want to give this one some thought and give a good answer but i also want to mention that probably because of salience the first thing that comes to mind is the shining same um you speak on that and i will also figure out what i think so here's my thing on the shining i want it to get that same treatment. I unfortunately don't know if it's appropriate for the haunting anthology. Sure, yeah. Because those really shine on their ensembles. And the you shining. Do you think the shining is an ensemble? It is. Because you have all three of the Torrances are very full characters. Yeah. Um, Halloran is a very full character. Um, what's his face? The man, the hotel manager, could be okay. flushed out. You know what? The the guy who killed his daughters could Grady. be flushed out. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. You know what? Yes, let me revise that because I kind of forgot that. Also, they typically rewrite the story. They re- in yeah, a lot of they ways. take a lot of liberties, and for how little plot is in the turn of the screw, they do so much with that. Yes, and how little character development. Mm. So, okay. Uh, yeah, strike that. I would love to see 
The Shining get this treatment. I don't think it will, especially since I think J.J. Abrams is attached to uh, The Shining project currently. Um, I, I like to think that Stephen King would probably be okay with whatever kind of adaptation Finnegan would come up with for it. It would certainly be better than Cooper. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I think that would be interesting, especially because Dick is in some other stories, right? Or does mm-hmm. he show up in Yeah, it? he's in It. Knowing that like, even in Bly Manor in the second half, we get an episode that draws its plot from another Henry James work. I wouldn't be surprised if an adaptation of The Shining would pull in some of Halloran's part in it as, like, a Halloran backstory episode. Mm-hmm. Okay, that would be interesting, especially because then, like, we could get actual flashback episodes of Jack and Wendy in college. Mm-hmm. Just to have our hearts broken. Yeah, maybe even give us, like, an episode... Oh, yeah, we would get episodes from, like... um Possibly, like, an episode about Derwent. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and, yeah, an episode about Grady would be cool. Huh. Okay. I don't know. I, I think I can really see it. <laughs> I would love to see that. So I have a couple of thoughts okay. um, in response. I don't know if I like them more than The Shining, but mm. um, as I was just kind of thinking through our other episodes, first, I'm going to say... Things heard and seen would be really interesting, but I do not think I could watch 10 episodes of that just because of how emotionally draining it was for me. Yeah. But I'm sure they could do a lot with that and it could be done quite beautifully. Yeah. What do you think about Benighted? I wondered if you were going to say that one. Because I can't really see it myself because I couldn't mm-hmm. see how they were going to do the turn of the screw either. Exactly. Because of how I, like I said, I feel like there's so little to go off of. But, I mean, yes. Benighted has some really interesting characters, and I would love to see... I, I think they would have fun with the Femme family, too. Oh, yeah. They would do so much to humanize them in ways that we were kind of disappointed with in the book. Mm-hmm. So to see what they could do with those characters, make them sympathetic in fact he might be the only person i would trust to adapt benighted because it works so well as a book yeah that i i would only trust it to someone who does a very good job of adapting books in that way i think it would make a good play too actually Ooh. but um like a stage play yeah but we're talking about this here. Was Benighted um, based on a play? Was that the one? Maybe that... it was. I'm. I, I'm getting them confused now. I can't remember if it was a. Well, oh, I think it was a book first, and yeah. then it maybe had a play, and then a movie. Maybe that was. Or was it Cat in the Canary? I'm thinking of that had a play. They both did. They both I, I did. think I'm okay. fairly certain that they both had a play and they both had a movie, but I can't remember. I think one might have been in one order, order. and one might have been the other. Yeah. Um, I would like to see this treatment for. Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, that would be amazing. I just want a Rebecca miniseries in general. Yes. But this, I was a little disappointed with the (laughs) recent Rebecca movie that came out, but I would really enjoy seeing it reimagined. Mm. The book itself is so good. Mm -hmm. And so I would just love seeing it reimagined with, even more depth. That gives them a lot of characters to work with, too. And some really fun sets, I feel like. Mm. Oh, and they could definitely pull in the same cast, like a lot of the same cast members from Bly Manor. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, I mean... And now I'm trying uh, to think of, like, a time setting that they haven't done yet. Well, and we're thinking, really, of just... Brit lit and American lit, but there's so much outside of that too, which Very I'm hoping that we'll be able to get to a little bit more next season. Um, that's one of my goals for the show is to broaden from just <laughs> this very uh, English and American centric perspective. Yeah. But yeah. Huh. 
Because you know what I was like, I kind of had this like side thought, which actually got me thinking about Rebecca via the Netflix adaptation connection Mm -hmm. was passing. I don't know why. That's not a ghost story. (laughs) But like, I was just thinking of books I'd read recently. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think it was Netflix that did a film adaptation of it recently. And I remember liking that pretty well. Mm. Um, but for some reason, my brain is just like, what if they made it a whole miniseries and added all these different subplots? <laughs> <sighs> Though, um, it is a psychological thriller. Good point. It isn't as written, literally, a ghost story. Yeah. Nor a haunted house story. <laughs> but... It is a psychological thriller, so... Yeah. <laughs> I'm not making an argument for passing, but I just wanted to share because, like, <laughs> it's fun to, to imagine that, I think. Yeah. No, that's fun. Any others? I mean, he's already Maybe. working on an adaptation of Fall of the House of Usher. Yes. Because that might have been another one for me. I mean, honestly, we'll see how Fall of the House of Usher does, but I could see myself being happy with him doing any Poe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Especially since a lot of those are short stories that leave a lot of room uh, for interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if you, dear listener, have a work that you would like to see adapted into the haunting anthology, tweet your pitch to us. We can't actually pass it along to him. Uh, we don't. I we're guess not we friends could add yet. Him. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll add him. You know, really, this whole podcast is just so that we can get to meet Mike Flanagan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, they're on to us. Oh, no. (laughs) I did have one more thought. Okay. Instead of the haunting anthology, picture Betrayal at House on the Hill, the game, as a TV series by those responsible for Lost and Once Upon a Time. (laughs) Woohoo! Oh, you hate it? (laughs) <laughs> that kind of sounds like High School Musical, the movie, the musical. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, because like it's already based on a whole bunch of other stories, and then yeah. So the idea is that like since the whole point of those shows is to like mix a whole bunch of like plot lines together, like basically do uh, Love Actually, okay. but in a TV series. And then you could have, like, people going through the house, and then each episode you get, like, somebody's backstory, a ghost that died there. I'm sure someone's done this before. Maybe not with Betrayal at House on the Hill, but, like, done that concept. Yeah. Well, I feel like you could take... What was that one that everyone keeps recommending to us? Uh... That new TV series? Oh, is it Ghosts? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Where there's, like, different ghosts in the house, I think. I think. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. I have no idea. I might be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I could see that going in a um, cabin in the woods sort of Mm -hmm. direction, too. Kind of meta. Yeah. I could see that getting a little little bit meta. Or, okay, you're going to hate this one. Betrayal at House on the Hill. Done in the style of Jumanji. No! (laughs) I don't like that. Oh, but I kind of do. But I also don't. I think that would be pretty cool. I have a fear of Jumanji. (laughs) That goes back to when I was a child. Let's talk about that. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, if you really think about it, it's really scary to think I was aware of the concept of the kid being stuck in this game, mm-hmm. survive. Okay, so first off, my I hate reading survival books because I know I would not make it and I would be very sad the whole experience. And so I don't like thinking about that. Mm. And so this person is stuck in a game for like two decades in a survival scenario because they have to figure out how to survive in the jungle. So it's like two different things that I would never <laughs> want happening. And that kid gets turned into a monkey. It's very scary. I don't think it's a children's movie at all. (laughs) I don't think it's appropriate. (laughs) It really does lean into a few different types of horror. Like, if you think about it, it's fridge horror. Like, if you think about it too long, then you're like, wow, this is is existential and horrific. And body horror. And, yeah. So, in in your version, you're Hmm. saying that they would go from room to room 
of the house and like get kind of sucked into so yeah like they lay down the new room tile they go into the room oh i see because it's a board game okay yeah sorry i didn't make that <laughs> i'm slow i didn't make that connection <laughs> and so whatever happens there actually happens oh i i love I like it, but also, I don't like it. Is that getting a little bit into, like, I never saw this one, but Zeth- Zathura? I didn't see that one either, because it was, like, Space Jumanji, and I was like, well, I already yeah. didn't like Jumanji. Because <laughs> I think their <laughs> and house... And it's not that I don't like Jumanji, I'm just afraid of Jumanji. <laughs> yeah. Which I only say, because I'm pretty sure, like, their house ends up in space yeah. when they do it, so I wonder if it, like, takes them to wherever the game is doing stuff or something. I don't know. That's the concept that I got from watching the trailer. Yeah. In the movie theater as a child. <laughs> and then you put that down on the will not watch list. Correct. Scary for Laura. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, I think it's time think to wrap. Been... But this was nice to yeah. do instead of ratings because yeah. um we figured it didn't make sense to do ratings until the end of next episode mm-hmm. um when we've finished off the series. Yeah. Well that about does it for our show. Thank you for joining us as we explored the haunting of Bly Manor. Tune in next time for the second half of this two-parter and our final episode of Haunted Spouse Season 1. If you're new to Haunted Spouse, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-spook review. Reviews help us get our show out there and help listeners find the pod. So, if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, you can suggest a rating category like spookiness, spousiness, housiness (laughs) that we will use in an upcoming episode. If you have comments, topic suggestions, or just want to say hi, send us an email at hauntedspousepod at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media at Haunted Spouses. Thanks for listening. And remember, dead doesn't mean gone.